Here we go. There is one thing that is stronger than all of the armies of the world, wrote Victor Hugo, and that is an idea whose time has finally come. Now, I submit to you that the gospel is a whole lot more than just an idea. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans 1.16 that it is the very power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew and also to the Gentile. So the gospel, what an awesome thing to contemplate. The very, not, not just an idea whose time has finally come, but the very power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We know that the gospel breaks sin's barrier. It sets the prisoners free. And in Acts chapter 8, we see that the salt is finally leaving the Jerusalem salt shaker. Just as God has planned. So not only is the gospel uh, God's plan to advance and save souls, but it's also something that will not be thwarted. In other words, it's going to accomplish its purpose. Listen to Luke chapter 21. Excuse me, Luke chapter 24. Listen to the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, gospel advance. This is a promise from Jesus. These are the words of Christ. The gospel will advance to all nations. And the Bible says, you are witnesses of these things. And then if you flip over to the Apocalypse, y'all know what that is? That's the book of Revelation. That's right. By the way, you hear people say sometimes, turn to the book of Revelations. There's only one Revelation. Only one Apocalypse, okay? It's singular. And here's what it says in chapter 7 of the Apocalypse, verse 9. I love this verse. Think about gospel advance. Power of the gospel. Listen. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah. So we're in Acts, and we're seeing the gospel advancing to the nations. And in Acts chapter 8, we see the twin themes as the gospel advance, advances. We see great persecution and great joy. How is it? That, that seems like an oxymoron, right? To, be, to have great persecution, but on the same end, to have great gospel joy. And that's what this text is about this morning. Remember, we saw several dynamics at work in the stoning of Stephen, we see a Sanhedrin that feels like they're totally justified murdering someone because of the law's protocol. They said, Stephen, you demean the law. You're dissing Moses and all these things. 
So they put him to death, but also we see mob violence. Much like when Christ was crucified, the mob is coming upon Stephen, ready to crucify him. But there's also another dynamic. There's There's a young man that was standing there holding his cloaks, holding the cloaks of the ones who would stone Stephen. And he's going to be mentioned again in Acts chapter 8. So Acts 8, 1 through 8, we're going to see great persecution and great joy. Are you ready for the reading? Let's stand in honor. Let you stretch. Here it is. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Rightly so. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Hallelujah. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said to Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And check out verse 8. So so there was much joy in the city. Great persecution in verse 1. Great joy in verse 8. To God be the glory. You may be seated. Uh, Many scholars will tell you that 8.1 really belongs to the preceding paragraph. Uh, But how in the world could you ever preach on the stoning of Stephen and end up giving credit in verse 1 to Saul who was consenting enthusiastically to his death? But you understand in the Greek and Hebrew you don't have chapter headings and divisions. That's for smoothness of reading. When you look at a Greek New Testament and or Hebrew, you just see words everywhere with no paragraph breaks and no chapter headings. Sometimes the chapter headings do not fit. Well, this is one of those cases where verse 1 really should be the end of chapter 7. However, again, uh, I like preaching it like it is because I don't want to end Stephen's martyrdom. I'd rather end in verse 7, of course, excuse me, in the end with him falling asleep in the arms of Jesus versus thinking about Saul of Tarsus. But think about this. He's giving his hearty approval, 8.1 says. He enthusiastically consented to the death of Stephen. Anytime you're enthusiastically consenting to someone's death, I think you'd be called cold-blooded. That's exactly the wording here. He has uh, great hatred. He is spewing out vile venom against the church of the living God. And again, Luke was a physician. And Luke is the writer of Acts. He is given to extreme detail because he's a physician. And note the extreme detail of this particular text in 8.1. And there arose on that day a great persecution. Why is the emphasis upon that day? I think it would have been etched and emblazoned on the minds of those for years to come Because of this great day of persecution. He singles it out as a great day of persecution. Etched in the memories of the people for time to come. The word persecution means to pursue. Couple that with great. And what you have is a severe onslaught. A severe persecution. Severe pursuit 
toward the people of God and against Christ. Ultimately, we know it's not against the people. It's against the Lord of glory. So the writer emphasizes this. Does this seem kind of odd and out of sorts for us to think about great persecution to the church of the living God? Because it's easy for us in the great U.S. of A. to stand back from that and think, uh, I don't think I've ever been persecuted one minute of any day ever for the cause of Christ. How is it that initially in the embryonic stages of the church, there was great persecution formed that day against Christ because of the witness of who he is? I want to remind you that this has always been the history of the church. Wherever the church has truly existed, it has always existed in and around persecution. It's marked the church for 2,000 years. Wherever the church has existed, this kind of persecution has taken place. Well, we know that Jerusalem is, in essence, the birthplace of Christianity. Now, think about how awesome that is. They're trying to stamp it out. You know, get this Jesus. We thought when we put him in the tomb that the Jesus thing was over. Right? That's what they're thinking. Of course, they couldn't find a body, so thus, exhibit A, they're in trouble. The tomb is empty, right? We thought we had done away with this Christ thing, but in the very city where he was crucified, Christianity springs up. Can't stop it, can you? And so that's the case of what's going on. But Luke says that the church was scattered, dispersed, with the exception of the apostles. And why did they remain in Jerusalem? Because it was essential for them to remain there until the fulfillment of the message of the gospel reaches the Gentiles. It was essential that they stay there. And Luke uses terminology here. The terminology is that the church is scattered. Don't let that just fly right over your head because this is vitally important. When did the first dispersion take place, by the way? It's quiet in here. When did the first dispersion, diaspora, take place? Well, it was at the building of the Tower of Babel. Are y'all tracking with me now? That's where the word begins. Because of their sin against God, God dispersed the languages. We might even say that the first expulsion, dispersion, took place in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, y'all know that story, right? First time in recorded history where a man, where a woman ate a man out of house and home. <laughs> no, just kidding. But that's the dispersion because of Adam's sin. God expelled them from the garden, dispersed them, scattered them out from the garden. But the power of ba- Tower of Babel is the first big one. Scattered out the languages. Well, there's another one in Deuteronomy where they're given to dispersion. Why? Because God says, if you're faithful to the covenant, to do what I've asked you to do, I'm going to bless you. But if you're not faithful, I'm going to curse you. And we know what happened. We see in 722 B.C. there's the Assyrian invasion to the north, and then there's the Babylonian invasion in 536 to the south. And God, uh, there's this technical term, he scatters them in Babylonian captivity. Dispersion. It comes to be known as the diaspora. You ever heard of that? Raise your hand. The diaspora is deportation. God scattering out his people because of their sin. Now, how does that fit here? Same terminology that Luke uses. There's a scattering of the church. Well, folks, the judgment that takes place here is not against the church. The judgment is against Jerusalem. Are y'all listening? You need to listen to everything I say this morning because it's vitally important, okay? 
Especially when I get down to the point where Philip is preaching and everybody gives him his attention, their attention. Wow, one accord listening. Boy, that would be great, right? That in one accord, everybody listens. I know that's not going to be the case. Uh, but the fact is, the judgment is against Jerusalem. Why? He came into his own, and his own received him not. They saw him, the Lord of glory, as uh, given by the Father, beholding the glory. of He is the very glory of God, dwelling with man, and yet they rejected him. And now the light of the glorious gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ is going to move because of rejection. You ever feel like that's the case in the United States of America? Folks, we've had the light so long. We've had the gospel in this country so long. But it's not exploding in our country anymore. As a matter of fact, to see the gospel exploding, you've got to get on a plane and fly across the ocean. And then you land over there and you see the gospel unhindered and exploding all over the world, penetrating darkness where we never thought the gospel would ever penetrate, but it is. But Jerusalem had hardened its heart against the gospel, and so is America. So God, in His infinite wisdom, is going to take persecution and mobilize 15,000 believers and push them out of Jerusalem. Hmm, isn't that awesome? Through great persecution, God thrust out 15 diaspora, scatters them, 15,000 of them. Real quickly, uh, James. Remember, at this point, he's back in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, he's not talking about 12 literal tribes in, in Old Testament terminology. He's talking about, I'm greeting the churches from Jerusalem. Y'all getting this? Apostles still remaining. Flip over a couple of pages. First Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect, exiles, that word in the Greek is aliens, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here's James, an apostle. Here is Peter, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're writing to the churches that are dispersed, people who are scattered in, this, in the known world at that particular time, and they're evangelizing and giving out the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were reminded of this truth of why they were put there. Now think for a moment. What is the pr principle of being scattered? What's the principle of dispersion? What's the principle of exiles and aliens? Folks, this is not your home. It's not your home. You're just a passing through, right? As the old song says, we've lost that dynamic in our world, haven't we? We buy everything we can possibly get. We put all our confidence in our 401, our whatever you call them things. Four, K, what do you call that thing? Yeah, four, you know what it is. I got you, see? We put all our stock in those things and, and our retirement, and we, we settle down to get as comfortable as we possibly can. And I want to remind you, James and Peter says to the people, you're an alien. This, you're, you're a pilgrim. This is not your home. You're sent here and scattered with a purpose. You are the diaspora today if you're saved. Now, you may not ever wake up and think about that until you die and meet Jesus face to face, but that's what you are if you're saved. You are a, you're a pilgrim. You've been scattered with a purpose. And the king 
wants you to fulfill his message. You've got a peculiar purpose. You say, well, that's not my mentality. Well, that's the mentality of the Bible. Scattered with a purpose. Please note this. They were scattered to Judea and Samaria. Aren't you thankful God is sovereign? What does he say in Acts 1-8? And you shall, not you might, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Say it. Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So we see God sovereignly working. It was never God's purpose for them to remain in Jerusalem. It was his purpose to scatter it out. So immediately all of these regions of Judea and Samaria, they're pregnant with the gospel. They're saturated with missionaries. And Luke finds it fitting to address once more the faithful martyr. The very first Christian martyr who gave his life for the cause of Christ was Stephen. And the Bible says that they, with care, went after his body. Folks, do you know what they were risking just to go bury his pulverized body? Now, Stephen wasn't in that body, right? Right? He had seen the resurrected Lord standing at the right hand of the Father through the vision, uh, but now he's with him in glory. But they, they take care to take that pulverized body, and they bury it, and they lament loudly over him. And then note verse 3. Saul is active, ravaging the church. He's going to bring out this point that he persecuted the church of God. And really it put emotional scars in Paul's mind and heart for the rest of his life because of how he treated the church. If you want to read some of that, I know we don't have time. But in 9.1, you're going to see that he's picking up steam. He's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. When he saw that it wasn't enough just to arrest him in Jerusalem, he went to the Sanhedrin and said, Give me some letters. And I'm going to go wherever I have to go and find believers. And I'm going to drag out the men and women and put them in prison. And as you read in Galatians and 1 Corinthians and Acts 22, and especially 1 Timothy. Let me read that one to you. He's writing a, a pastoral epistle to Timothy, his young protege in the faith. And he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor and an insolent opponent, but I receive mercy. Aren't you thankful for mercy? So this is what Paul was doing in his life. When you see dragging men and women, folks, it's one thing to think about dragging a man out of his home, but think about him dragging the women out and leaving the children alone. That's why Luke gives that detail. He just goes in and snatches the men and women that are Christ followers and he leaves the children by themselves and he puts the parents in jail. That's the kind of person we're dealing with. The militant Muslims of our day would have nothing on Paul. I mean, he was a terrorist against the people of God. Can you imagine that this same man, not three years later, is going to be standing and preaching the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ in depths that we've never, ever heard it before? What a testimony of what God's grace can do. On Saul's transformation alone, from a man that goes from a terrorist in chapter 8 to an evangelist in chapter 9, that's a testimony to prove the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was riding down the road this week, and I don't know what the song was, and the tune wasn't necessarily catching to me, but I did catch this. The song says God can take somebody that is dirty! And make them worthy. Right? And that's what he does with Saul. He takes a man that is filthy and dirty. One who will champion the fact that I'm the worst of sinners. And God gloriously saves Saul. So, this is what's going on with persecution. 
But then, in the midst of all this persecution, here's what the Bible says regarding the activity of the church. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Anybody see the connection in here with persecution and the preaching of the word? The actual term preaching is gospeling. They're gospeling the word as they go out. They're scattered, but they're preaching the word. The saving work of Christ. Does that speak of the sovereignty of God and Christ over his church? I will scatter my people, and it, was, it will serve as the greatest missionary strategy known to man. Through persecution, scattering, God starts missionary work. It was gospel propagation via persecution. Write that in the ledger of your Bible and read it over twice a day. Right? Gospel propagation via persecution. That's how God does it, folks. I know you're thinking, you're thinking inwardly in your mind and heart. God, how do I fit into your plan when we've never been persecuted much in our country when it comes to gospel advance? Well, what can we say about these people? Well, they didn't look for a safe place to go, did they? Yeah. Uh, remember, these were uh, good old Bass Pro Shop hillbillies, right? With their overalls on. As a matter of fact... The Sanhedrin says, Whoop, we know who these are. We can tell by their accent and their overalls. It doesn't say overalls. But the accent. They knew that they were not, they were not Jerusalemites. They were Galileans. Well, the safe place to go when you're scattered is to go home where it's safe. Let me tell you something, folks. Jerusalem was not safe. But here they go where God sends them. They're scattered out. And they're leaving behind their homes their families, their jobs, their careers. And they see the purpose of Christ in the fact that they're being scattered. Are y'all listening to me? Hello. They see the purpose of Christ over all of that. Now, folks, think about this. They're leaving families and jobs and homes and everything they have. And they're doing it with a purpose in mind that Jesus Christ is scattering us so that we can gospel the word. That's what's going on. Philip... It's pointed out here as one of the seven, of course. And he goes down to Samaria. You know about these people, don't you? They're the half-breeds. Where'd they come from? Well, in the deportation in 722, the Assyrians were some smart rascals. And they took in some POWs, prisoners of war, from Jerusalem. But they also would take prisoners of war from every other nation they had conquered. And they would put them together. Why? To stamp out nationalism. Oh, you're not going to be so gung-ho about and patriotic about your country if we make you a half-breed, right? But that's what they become. And to the Jews, they're despised. They're half-breeds. They only believe five books. They're half-Jews, right? They believe five books of the Bible, and it's called the Pentateuch. It's the, it's the writings of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And although they had a mixed bag of religious beliefs... There was one verse. <laughs> Boy, this is good. I'm making myself happy preaching it, right? Look, this is really good. Deuteronomy. Check this out. This is the one verse they stuck to. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. <laughs> Woo! This is Moses now. 
And he's giving that verse that there's one coming. And we know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. And what did the woman at the well, the Samaritan, say to Jesus? There's one that's coming. Our fathers say there's one that's coming. And Jesus said, the one that's speaking to you, that's me. I'm him. Right? And he shared the gospel and he was offering a spiritual water for a parched soul. And, and he, he wins her to Christ. Jesus wins her to himself. And she goes about and says this expression. You remember that? Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Surely he must be a prophet. Well, that's a humorous line, right? Uh, way more than a prophet. He's God in the flesh. But thus the gospel. Now you think about when Philip goes down there and starts proclaiming Jesus. And Jesus has already dropped that gospel seed in the heart of that Samaritan woman. And she's gone back down to her people. And then along comes Philip down there to preach the word. Jesus actually will tell a parable. And he will make the hero of the parable a Samaritan. Right? He's going he's gonna to save a Samaritan leper. He's going to do all these things so that the appetite of the people... Look, folks, you're never the first touch in somebody's life when you share the gospel. The God of heaven has always gone before you. You'll never be the first touch with the gospel. Romans 1 teaches that our, our God has put in their hearts and minds an awareness of His his uh, presence because he created the worlds that they look at, look at every single morning. They're without excuse according to the word of God. So you will give the gospel witness, folks, but I tell you this, the greatest encouragement for evangelism is the fact that the Holy Spirit of God has gone before you. And so here is Philip. He's going down into Samaria. He's preaching Jesus. But it's also accompanied by signs and wonders and all these amazing things are taking place, I might add. Like Jesus. Because he goes down. Jesus comes down from heaven. And he's living his ministry. And he's casting out demons. And he's healing people. And it's testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ can transform a life. I mean, we're tempted to stop at this point and say, Well, in the present day presentation of the gospel, should it not be accompanied with pastors throwing out demons and healing people? I mean, that's what it says here in Acts, right? They're preaching the Word, but then they see exorcisms and healings. And we're tempted to think, uh, especially if you watch your TV people that are always trying to heal someone, you wonder, how should these practices work? Well, I want to let you know that these were exceptional signs. Again, Acts is a particular genre of the Bible. And the genre is history, Right? And so, as Luke is given this incredible history, he has given us circumstances and events, but he's not giving you a direct correlation that all of that stuff is to take place today. Now, can Jesus Christ heal? You better believe it. But very rarely do people have their healing services and point to the gospel and call out people's sins. It's come down, let's mess your hair up, let your arm grow longer than the other, and you get healed and you leave. But that's not gospel presentation. Miracles were never done willy-nilly in the Bible. There's always a reason why Jesus healed someone. And it was to point to the fact that he could transform the heart. The same one that had the power to make a lame man walk is the same one that can cause your heart, though dead in trespasses and sin, he can make your heart alive. So people were embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a revival in Samaria. Why was that happening? Because God is sovereign. 
and you shall be my witnesses. God already said it. It's going to happen in Samaria. The gospel is becoming universal in its application. Don't you love verse 8? Great joy is accompanying this. Can you imagine going back to work the next day and living in Samaria? And one of, you say, one of my loved ones who was paralyzed for years is leaping and praising God. Now, folks, this is the joy that is nothing less than the proper fruit of the gospel transforming a life. There's a fruit that comes from the gospel transforming a life. You old Baptist, you gloomy Gus Baptist, downtrodden Baptist, right? Where's the joy, church family? Where's the joy in knowing Jesus? Well, we lose our joy often if we lose our job. We're in a financial upheaval. Somebody hurts our feelings. We lose our joy. Was your joy in Jesus or not? Is this gospel joy that you have or circumstantial joy? Hey, I'm asking a question. Anybody going to respond to me? Y'all, y'all wake up there in the balcony. I forgot about y'all up there for a minute. I see you now. Preaching directly to you, looking at you, right? No, seriously, it's, all, it's true for us. So often my joy is dependent on circumstances. No, not if you're born of God. Look, folks, all their circumstances were turned on their heads. They didn't have anything. They're scattered about, but they had real gospel joy. If you ever take part in the, in the membership class that I teach, and if you never have, and you're a member, you still should take it. But all of you who are joining the church, you have to take it, okay? But everybody should. But one of the principles we bring out in that class is that we ought to have a passionate pursuit for, the, for joy in God. That's why God saved you. So that your ultimate joy is in Him. Right? But also, we should have a passionate pursuit for joy of God in other people. That's why we witness. Because the same joy we have in being transformed by the gospel is the same joy that we want others in this world to have who are on their way to hell. We want them to have joy in God. That's why we witness. So let me tell you that the best attempts of wicked men to overthrow what God does will not prevail. Uh, the Sanhedrin was trying to stamp it out. Saul was trying to stamp it out. And God just takes that persecution. Boom! And the church begins to advance and grow. God has a plan and it will not be stopped. He has a plan and it will not be stopped. I read to you Revelation 7, 9. Did y'all see the same scripture I saw? They're going to be there. Around the throne, worshiping the king. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God scatters us, gives us gospel joy, but it doesn't always involve our comfort. And that's what's wrong with the Church of America today. We have an insipid, we've got a dumbed-down, Christmas sentimentality type of Christianity that is foreign from the Bible. And when I look at this, I'm convicted in my heart. And so should you. We ought to all stop and think, God, are you really my most valuable treasure? Uh, how, how can I live out this in our country? You, you just can't pick up roots and take off. I'm not telling you to become a historical crusader, but I am telling you that it ought to make us stop and think about where we are. Right? What's our understanding of true Christianity? Allow me to give you a couple of principles of application 
And we're done. First, God uses the preached word. This is in your notes. As an oracle of judgment and a catalyst for missions. Now folks, how did all this start? How did all the persecution start? With a sermon that was preached. Who preached the sermon? Stephen preached the sermon. And because of what he preached, they killed him. But God takes the sermon. They they see it as persecution, stamping out the way. But God takes it and makes it a catalyst for missions. Don't, Don't miss this. It's the preached word. Don't miss the connection. The persecution was a result of preaching. And they thoroughly missed the concept of where God would have his name to dwell. Remember in Stephen's sermon? They thought God dwelled in the temple. We've got the temple. Glory, hallelujah, we have the temple. And Stephen says the true temple has come down. His name is Jesus Christ. And where does God dwell? Wherever Jesus is. Most assuredly today in you, if you're a born-again believer. So he preaches this. And they had obscured that reality because of their belief in sacred space. They believed they had God, but it was idolatry. How do you think the religious organizations in Stephen's day were responding to his preaching when they called him out? Ooh, we see it pretty clearly, don't we? How do you think the religious organizations would have responded today in the U.S. if somebody stood up and preached this kind of sermon? How would they have responded? Well, something like this. You know, I know that Stephen, he's a good guy and all. I know he's got really good character. But, uh, I mean, there's a point of being bold. But there's a point of being absolutely crazy. And to stand against the religious powers of that day and preach that kind of sermon, this guy was off his rocker. Now, I'll just tell you, he loved Jesus more than, the, he loved Jesus more than anything else. And he knew the power of the preached word. His sermon was the controversial, incendiary catalyst for the persecution that took place. But all of this was ordained by God. Don't miss this. It was the incendiary catalyst of why the persecution started in the first place. It was because of the preached word that God ordained it. Here's what I want to say to you about that. May God raise up a hundred thousand 100,000 preachers of the gospel that aren't worried about offending people when they preach the Word. But they preach the Word. Why? Because God told them to preach the Word. We ought to preach it so strongly and firmly and penetrating that if it makes you mad, that I might ought to say, God, you ordained it. You don't like that, do you? Some of you are looking at me kind of strange. But folks, it made these people so mad that they killed the man because he preached the truth. Sometimes we think if you just draw the crowd and everybody likes you. Remember, as the scripture is given, beware when all men think well of you. I'm not most concerned about everybody in this church liking me, especially when it comes to preaching the word. I hope you respect the preaching of the word. I hope you do like me, but I hope you like me because I preach the word. Right? Because of what's preached. I'm not out to draw a crowd and have everybody like me and give you soothing platitudes and cotton candy. I'm here to give you the truth of the Word of God. And the truth of the Word of God got Stephen killed. But today we have men who will not tell the truth. They will not preach what the Word says for no reason. Why? We might hurt somebody's feelings. Well, folks, let me tell you something. He's the stone that the builders rejected. He's the cornerstone. Here's the deal. 
It was a cause of stumbling. And ladies and gentlemen, you're either going to stumble over the cross and the gospel and enter heaven, or you will stumble into hell. It's a rock of offense. When do we ever think that the gospel is something that people are going to sit there and say, Yay, we love to hear it. Folks, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to us. Why? Because you've got to give up your rights in order to be saved. You've got to bow to the king and give him authority in your life. Well, I could preach on that forever. Oracle of judgment. Catalyst for missions. Here's the second thing. God uses persecution to spread the gospel. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Let me add to that. And God is sovereign over that persecution. Right? God uses persecution to spread the gospel, and God is sovereign in it. That's very obvious from this text. Uh, Real quickly, Luke chapter 21. Listen to this. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Has that happened in Acts? Oh yeah, Luke was saying this, same one that wrote Acts. This will be your opportunity to write your legislator. This will be your opportunity to complain to your state senator. What does the Bible say? When you're drugged before kings, princes, it'll be your opportunity to bear witness of Christ. God uses persecution to advance the gospel. It'll lead for an opportunity for testimony. When you get to Acts 11, verse 19, same words. They were scattered so that they could preach the word. Number three, God uses suffering to propagate true gospel joy. Do you think these guys and gals knew what it was like to suffer for Christ? They were uprooted from families, from jobs, from homes. As the old song says, they had to let goods and kindreds go. They left behind everything. They were serious about the mission. And so they ended up spreading gospel joy. They were showing something of the suffering of Christ, which blows our minds. How do we ever connect the the dots of the glory of Christ that he didn't enter into his glory before he suffered? And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that you won't either. The Bible says that all of those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. And we we see those things, but it just bounces off our minds and we we don't understand it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, folks, is more valuable than your house. I heard a couple of rumblings over this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than Ozark, Missouri. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than any kind of vehicle you can ever purchase. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more valuable than your job. By their willingness to suffer, they were spreading the true joy of the gospel. They had a passion to spread it among the people. Can you imagine the testimonies? Uh, Where are you from? Well, I'm from Jerusalem. Why are you down here? Because I'm a person of the way. By the way, they haven't been called Christian yet until we get to chapter 11. It'll blow your stack off to find out why they were called Christians. It was not a term of endearment. All right? Like you think it is in the U.S. So, I'm here... Because we were persecuted, and I'm not going to deny the Lord I belong to. And so I've left all these things. Jesus is more important than my house, my job, and my family. The joy of the gospel is greater joy than any joy this world can ever offer. He's something worth living for, and he's worth dying for. That's the testimony of these people. 
How will we ever see that kind of gospel power in the United States of America when we believe that a sign of success in ministry is to build plush theme parks, hotels, and go on Christian cruises? How will we ever, how will we ever show the value of Jesus Christ when we let people believe that it's the amenities that you get from following Jesus? Come after Jesus and he'll give you all these things. Really? My Bible says come after me and I'll give you a cross to bear. That's what the Bible says. You're going to bear a cross and pick it up and come after me. You're going to take an instrument of death and strap it to your back and follow me. Doesn't sound like what we teach and preach in the United States of America. I think until we are willing to suffer in a way that says that Jesus is more important than anything else in this world, how are we ever going to let this world know that he is the only eternal treasure you need? Folks, if we're not willing to suffer for him, how can we teach the world that he is the eternal treasure? Why? Because if you're just saying, hey, you got these amenities that come along with him, folks, people can get those amenities in a whole lot different ways. They can get those other amenities. They can try to find those things in life. But folks, oh, there's nothing more valuable than Jesus. There's nothing more valuable than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our willingness to pay a cost, to pay a price, is the most effective way to spread true gospel joy. But I think when the world looks at the church, we don't look much different from them. Let's just be honest. As as Vance Havner once said, the world is so churchy and the church is so worldly, we can't tell the two apart. Anyone on to say the church is so subnormal that if it ever became normal, we'd look abnormal. And we ought to look that way. We shouldn't look like the world that we belong to. Yes, we should penetrate it. Yes, we should have contact without contamination. But folks, the fact of the matter is, the old distinctives of the Christian faith and living for Jesus and being different and making a difference. Folks, that's not a thing that we see too often in our world today. We just kind of go along and get along, and that's the end of it. But folks, when you're living for Jesus and you follow Him, it's going to cost you. But you ought to be willing to do it because He's the eternal treasure. How much joy do you have in God this morning? I mean, your life can be falling apart all around you, but when you've got Jesus, you got it all. Amen? Just ask yourself that question in light of what's been preached. How much joy do you actually have in God today? It's so easy to put in family and, and heritage and legacy. It's even to put your, you can even put your joy in a building like FBCO has here. You can put your joy in the choir. You can put your joy in so many different things. If you don't find your joy in Jesus, you're not going to suffer for his namesake. I can tell you that now. But if you find your joy in him, you'll be willing to suffer for his namesake, and you will spread true gospel joy. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, I didn't sign up for this. Surely there's a more comfortable way to follow Jesus. You didn't ask that, did you? Surely there's a more comfortable way. Well, based on what the Word of God says... The moment you find a more comfortable way to serve Jesus is the moment you may find your way on the eternal route to hell. On the power of what Jesus said about being a disciple and about believing and about taking up your cross and about leaving your father and mother and everything else to follow him. Folks, 
all forsaken loyalties to follow Jesus. Just think of the magnitude of what he's saying. Last thing. Don't forget that Jesus can save the worst of sinners. And the backdrop of this is one named Saul, who God is going to miraculously save. Only Jesus could take a guy that was a terrorist in chapter 8 and make him an evangelist in chapter 9. I marvel at that good news, don't you? I marvel that God will, would save the worst of sinners like me. Uh, I can feel Paul's sympathy here. I can sympathize and even have empathy with him making this statement. Christ Jesus, here's his statement. This is saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I am the worst of these. Wow. We need, we need to pray persistently. We need to pray persistently for those outside of Christ. Don't we? Pray persistently for those. We need to marvel at the good news. We need to speak the good news faithfully because Jesus Christ has the power to save. As the old song says, Come you sinners, lost and lonely. Jesus' blood can make you free. For he saved the worst among us when he saved a wretch like me. You know the song? Yes, I know. Sing it. Yes, I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner free. Yes, I know, yes, I know, Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Think about that. Vilest of sinners. If God can save Saul, He can save you. Let's pray. Father... Thank you for your word. God, thank you for the faithful preaching that we see from Stephen. We thank you for your gospel plan. That you're going to take it to the ends of the world. And you're going to do it in large part by persecution. Father, we have faithful missionary brothers and sisters all over this world right now as I speak. That are living in dangerous, dark places. But the light of the gospel is penetrating the world they live in. They see it. They see it because they have a real gospel joy that would thrust them out of the comfort of their own home and press them into India and to Iran and Iraq and uh, Lord Afghanistan and uh, remote parts of this world where people are being killed and tortured for the cause of Christ. What takes them there? Well, it's the joy of God. It's the joy of the gospel. And it's the desire to see others have joy in God. And Lord, I know most of us can't get on a plane, and we won't get on a plane, and we won't live in a foreign country where the gospel is exploding. But we live in the U.S., and we have neighbors. We have people we're in contact with every day that need to know Jesus. We know full well, Lord, that other countries around us have more Christians than we have now. That reminds us that we may need missionaries sent to our country in the near future. But God, we're here already, and you've placed us here, and this is our Jerusalem. Ozark, Missouri, the United States of America, wherever we go. Father, would you help us treasure Jesus more than anything else in this world? Truly, Lord Jesus, you are greater and more valuable than anything this world can give us. And you are greater and more valuable, more treasured than anything that death can take from us. It's all about you, Lord Jesus, and we pray you would help us be your kind of people who are willing to follow, see gospel advance, and preach Jesus to those we come in contact with. 
God, help us to value you more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.